As we prepare our hearts to come to your word, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. That you would free us of distractions and hindrances and anything that would prevent us from gaining a full understanding of the passage that we'll be looking at today. But Lord, we come to you as hungry sinners who are asking to be fed. So please bless the preaching of your word. Use your word to feed us, to nourish us, to strengthen us, to teach us, to correct us where necessary, to encourage us that Christ may be glorified in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to be going through the whole chapter of 1 Samuel chapter 11 today as we continue in our study of 1 Samuel. Uh, If you need a Bible, uh, we do have several in the foyer for the taking. Uh, Feel free to, uh, to grab one if you need one. But today we'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 to 15, going all the way through the chapter. And this is a chapter about consequences. Actions have consequences. We know that, right? Uh, That's one lesson that I would think that pretty much every parent probably tries to pass on to their kids, that actions have consequences. I mean, think about it. You know, you you tell your kids, uh, you know, you play with fire, you're going to get burned, right? If you don't clean up your room, you're going to bed before you have dinner, right? These, These are all ways in which we teach this principle, that actions have consequences. Uh, Don't we all teach that at one point or another for those of us who who are parents or have been parents? Uh, For those of us who are adults, uh, we probably remember our parents teaching us those same things. And you know what? I bet our grandparents taught our parents that very same principle. It's an everlasting principle that actions have consequences. Uh, Some of us, uh, speaking for myself, I guess, uh, have to learn that principle the hard way, but the principle is nevertheless true. Actions have consequences. Israel was warned that if they exchanged God, if they traded God for a mortal king, if they wanted to be ruled over by a mortal king so that they could be like the nations around them, it would mean that they were rejecting God. Actions have consequences. And I hope that it would go without saying that rejecting God has some really serious consequences. So what were some of the consequences that Israel would face for their having rejected God? Well, for starters, Samuel warned the elders of Israel, if you remember, uh, back in chapter 8, that if they traded God in for a mortal man to be their king, that that king would take their sons. He would come in and take their daughters. He would take their servants. He would take their livestock. He'd take everything from them for his own purposes, because that's what sin does. It takes and takes and takes from us. But Israel as a nation has now rejected God in our text. And so the question is, what are the consequences when a nation rejects God? Well, Romans 1 actually tells us exactly what happens. It summarizes it very succinctly. Chapter 1, verse 18 of Romans tells us that what starts with the suppression of truth about God leads to darkened hearts. It leads to foolish thinking, futile speculations, according to verses 21 and 22. Verse 23 of Romans 1 tells us that the next step is 
idolatry. Uh, Of course, that takes on all kinds of appearances, forms. It looks like all sorts of things. Anything in the world can be an idol. Anything that we prioritize over God can be an idol. And we've actually seen a lot of idolatry in our study of 1 Samuel so far, haven't we? But throughout, the, throughout our study, we've seen Israel idolize the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of, of Yahweh, uh, thinking that it would grant them victory on the battlefield instead of going to God and trusting in Him to grant them victory. Uh, we've seen them uh, idolize uh, their, their king, um, the desire for a king, pol- a political idolatry. Uh, Romans one twenty three says that those whose minds have been darkened and who have become foolish exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. I, I hope you can see how Israel has done this. They have exchanged the incorruptible, glorious, and almighty God for a corruptible, sinful, not to mention cowardly, king named Saul. Uh, If only the consequences of this action, that being the rejection of God as a nation, if only those consequences stop there. But they don't. Uh, Romans chapter 1 verses 24 to uh, 27 go on to explain that there is a rapid descent into immorality. Uh, we, we really descend into, uh, into moral chaos from that point, which is exactly what you'd expect from those whose foolish minds have been darkened. It tells us that God then gives them over to the lusts of their hearts, uh, to impurity, to, to sexual impurity specifically. Uh, Paul tells us that these, uh, these kinds of things are degrading passions that God gives them up or gives them over to. What's a degrading passion? It's having a desire that makes you, it's kind of like its own punishment. It's a passion that degrades, that leads a person into a desire that is shameful, that is debased. Uh, and they start craving and desiring worse and worse things. Uh, more immoral and more immoral things. Paul writes in verses 26 and 27 of Romans 1, uh, For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. Now, don't get me wrong, people have always, uh, civilizations have always practiced sexual immorality. But in a society that has not completely abandoned every natural sense of what is right and good, Sexual immorality is never viewed in a healthy society as something that is normal. Rather, it's recognized as abnormal. It's recognized as being shameful, deviant, destructive, both to the individual and to society as a whole. But one of the consequences of rejecting God is a breaking down of, of societal morality. But Romans 1 makes it clear that societal norms become very twisted once a nation rejects God and has been handed over to these uh, debased passions. Uh, Paul notes that the next step is being handed over to a depraved mind, which is just where you reach a moral freefall. 
He writes in verses 28 to 32, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. You can't imagine anything worse than that, is the point. Those of you who were here in 2015, I think there are a few of you left who were here in 2015, you may remember that at the end of June, I warned us, uh, warned our congregation that this was actually the road that our country is on. And if you look at our country between 2015, June of 2015, and today, this is exactly, exactly what you see. When you read this passage in Romans 1, if you didn't know better, you'd think that it was actually talking about us. But no, today we're talking about Israel. We're talking about the consequences of their actions that we've seen here in Romans 1, how this really starts, and how they as a nation rejected and exchanged God and what some of the consequences of that will be. Today we're going to see that there were some immediate consequences for having rejected Him. It should have been... In normal conditions, it should have been a time of unity in Israel. It should have been a time of of celebration in Israel. After all, Saul has just been appointed as Israel's king. But we saw at the end of chapter 10 that all was not quite well in Israel. Um, There were some people that didn't have any confidence in Saul. Verse 27 told us this. It said, But certain worthless men, or sons of Belial, depending on your translation, said, How can this one, Saul, deliver us? And they despised him and did not bring him any present, but he kept silent. I think it's interesting that the political dissidents, I think that's what you call them, right? The political dissidents in Israel were referred to as worthless men. Uh, sons of Belial. These are sons of the devil. And if you understood the point that I tried to make as we looked at chapter 10, that no matter who rules on the throne, no matter who reigns over a nation, God is ultimately the one who is the sovereign king, who is working out all things according to his purposes. If you understood that much, you hopefully understood that if God is the one who appoints governments and kings... And he does. And if God is using our circumstances to grow us and to sanctify us, and he is, then we can be content regardless of who is on the throne, or in our country we'd say in the Oval Office. But these worthless men were not trusting God. And for that reason, they didn't honor their king. Now, just a quick reminder for us before we get started here, that Christians are instructed to honor everyone, to give honor to whom honor is due. Uh, That's not just a a New Testament principle, it's actually uh, explicitly in the New Testament, but it's also a principle that we find throughout the Scriptures, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that God's people should be a people who honor other people. A nation that's divided like Israel was, at this point, was clearly very vulnerable. 
But God would use an attack on Israel to unite them and to remind them that He alone can deliver them. The point of the passage that we come to today is that when a nation rejects God, we should expect that God's people will be troubled by those who hate them. And when we are, we must know that Christ is the King who will save us. So following His appointment as king uh, and the coronation that ensued, Saul, interestingly, went home, went back to his home in Gibeah, where he tried to keep living the same kind of life he had always lived, apparently. But it wasn't long before he was needed because it wouldn't be long before trouble in the land would arise. So let's start by looking at verses 1 to 3 of 1 Samuel chapter 11. It says, now Nahash the Ammonite came up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, I will make it with you on this condition, that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you. Thus I will make it a reproach on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Let us alone for seven days, that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to deliver us, we will come out to you. So trouble starts pretty quick. It starts for Israel when an Ammonite king decides to invade and besiege a region called Jabesh-Gilead. Ancient historians tell us that Nahash was a king who had conquered and made those he conquered his slaves. And the people here we see are are terrified. And so their response to King Nahash besieging them uh, is is to just fold. They they fold like a a wet towel. They they ask for a covenant, an an agreement, a, a promise to be established between them and King Nahash. They say, make a covenant with us and we will serve you, they say. See, they're, they're, they're trying to be, they're trying to avoid being taken as slaves but they don't want to avoid being taken as slaves by going to war against Nahash. They're pretty sure, apparently, that they would just get slaughtered. And so they try to negotiate a deal with him. Why are they so scared of this king? There are actually ancient texts that tell us that Nahash had been enslaving the tribes of Gad and Reuben. Uh, And upon taking those people as slaves, Nahash would remove the right eye of each of them. And Josephus, the ancient historian, uh, noted in his writings that ancient warriors would go into battle with their shields all interlocked so that the left eye was covered by the shield and their right eye was what they would use to navigate against uh, their enemies, to advance against their enemies. So by taking the right eye, they would not be able to go to battle as a unified army, but they'd still be able to serve King Nahash as slaves. Now, if King Nahash had taken successfully taken this region of Israel, which was to the east of the Jordan River, all the other tribes would have been that much more vulnerable. There would have been a brand new, huge, gaping vulnerability in the land of Israel. So this was actually a very uh, strategic attack on Nahash's part, which, if successful, would have just caused a, a collapse of all of Israel, would have created opportunities for all of Israel to be invaded again in the future. In the next chapter, we read something interesting. Uh, we'll read Samuel say this in chapter 12, verse 12. He says, 
when you saw that Nahash the king of the sons of Ammon came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, although the Lord your God was your king. Interesting. So what that indicates is that Nahash is the king who is responsible for instilling so much fear in the Israelites that they turned their hearts away from God and desired to replace God with a mortal earthly king. Uh, Maybe the perception on Nahash's part was, uh, okay, uh, Israel doesn't have a king, so I'm just going to go in there and I'm going to make them my servants since they don't have at least a visible king. You know, we, we know. But, uh, but he doesn't know. He's just thinking there's no king there. So he's planning this invasion. And the people respond to that by replacing God with Saul. The fact that King Nahash is said to have been trying to make a reproach on all of Israel. This is what the text tells us. It tells us that he's really trying to, to humiliate them. Uh, He's really trying to embarrass them, shame them. In fact, this issue was apparently very personal for him. And we might ask ourselves, why would this be a personal issue for him? Well, to understand why that might be, we should understand who the Ammonites were and where they came from. Uh, The Ammonites started back in Genesis Uh, The Ammonites started with Abraham's nephew. If you remember Lot, uh, they started with Lot. After God had delivered Lot and his family uh, from the wrath that he poured out on Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot was left with two daughters and no wife. His wife got turned to salt as she looked back uh, with regret. Uh, So one day, uh, Lot's daughters got this great idea, this crazy idea, as they're out hiding uh, from, from the, the, the people in the land. They're out hiding, and they get this idea that, well, their purpose in life is to bear children, and the only man around is their father, and so they decide to have their father's children. And so they get their dad, they get Lot drunk with wine, and they get themselves pregnant with his children. So we read this in Genesis 19.38, as for the younger daughter, that is, uh, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami, and he is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. That's where the Ammonites come from. The Ammonites were literally Israel's kissing cousins who had descended from this incestuous relationship between Lot and his younger daughter. Israel never liked the Ammonites, and the the feelings went both ways. It was mutual, right, for the duration of the Ammonites' existence. In Judges uh, 11.33, we read of another encounter with the Ammonites. We read of how a judge named Jephthah, Uh, struck them with a very great slaughter from Aror to the entrance of Mineth, 20 cities, and as far as Abel Kiramim. So the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. So there's a history. These, These are people who have gone to war with Israel before. And I have no doubt that King Nahash enjoyed seeing his distant cousins, the Israelites, filled with with terror filled with with fear of what he would or, or at least could do to them. He's a picture of the way that the world has always hated God's people. Nahash is a king who hated God's people, and he's a picture of the way that the world has always hated God's people. He hates them with an irrational hatred. Ralph Dale Davis 
in his commentary, notes this. He says, quote, This arrogance, this hatred never ceases. Nahash may become historical furniture, but the Ammonite mind that is to maim, destroy, and strangle God's people is always with us. End quote. And that's true to this day. It's the same hatred that led to the greatest injustice of all time when the world crucified the only sinless, innocent man in all of human history, that being Jesus Christ. But all of this is a reminder that it's because the world hates God's people, it's because the world hates us, that we must not turn our hearts and minds to dumb and mute idols. They cannot save us. We cannot put our trust in politicians or in political institutions or in movements. They will not save us from the world's hatred. They can't give us the grace to endure the world's hatred and to endure the temptations of the flesh that we face on a daily basis. But Jesus can. That's why idolatry is such a terrible thing it really renders us trusting in things that can't help us. The Israelites know that they need deliverance. King Nahash has come in. They they know who he is. They know what he's done. They're afraid of what he might do to them. And so they counter King Nahash's offer to gouge out the right eye of all of them by saying to them, let us alone for seven days that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to deliver us, we will come out to you. They're in a good place, believe it or not, because they realize that they need deliverance. They realize that they can't save themselves. They realize that they need salvation from their enemies, and that's a good place to be. We need it too, right? We need salvation too. We need deliverance from our enemies, from our sins. We need to be saved not only from the wrath of God against our sins, the, the, the wrath that, that our sins have earned us. But we also need grace to help us stand firm against the flesh, the devil, and the world, which entice us to sin. We also need salvation from all the physical threats and harms that may come against us in this world. We need a God who can not only hear us when we cry out to Him, but who can also do something about it. We need a God who can order all things for our greatest good, for our deliverance. And in Christ, we do have assurance of all these things. Let's continue, verses 4 to 11. It says, Then the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and spoke these words in the hearing of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and he said, What is the matter with the people that they weep? So they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out as one man. He numbered them in Bezek, and the sons of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. 
They said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you will have deliverance. So the messengers went and told the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Then the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. The next morning Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp at the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Now, if you were hoping for a, you know, a long, drawn-out, seemingly endless war between Israel and the Ammonites, sorry, you're going to be really disappointed here. Uh, if you were hoping to see King Saul fail as a leader, fail as a king against this, uh, this uprising against them, sorry, you're going to be disappointed with that too. Uh, this is one instance in which Saul does everything that you would expect a godly leader to do. The one time in his whole tenure as king that he does all the right things, everything as he should have done, he does here. And it results in a very quick war. Nahash allowed the Israelites to send the messengers out throughout all of Israel asking for help, asking for, for deliverance. But the fact that the elders of Jabesh planned on sending messengers throughout all of Israel uh, actually indicates that it's at least possible that news had not reached them that Saul had been appointed as king of Israel. Otherwise, wouldn't they have just sent their messengers directly to King Saul? It seems like that would have made a lot more sense if they knew that he had been appointed as king. But eventually, some messengers do get to the region that Saul uh, went back to, this, the, the region where he was from, in, in Gibeah, where he was still living. He'd gone back to living there. But the news of the invasion was first announced publicly to the people uh, without Saul being there. And as the news was, was being reported to them, we read, all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Perhaps these people had also heard of King Nahash. Maybe they were uh, familiar with who he was and what he was capable of doing. There are actually some indications in Judges chapter 21 that many of the people in the region of Gibeah had mothers who were from uh, Jabesh-Gilead. So they were descendants of that area. But the weeping of the people is so loud as Saul comes back into town, he can hear them coming from the field behind the oxen. And so he, he starts asking questions. He, he inquires, you know, what, what's going on? What's the reason for their weeping? And as the news is communicated to him, Saul's first test as king is laid out right in front of him at his feet. The elders of Israel had wanted a king who could go to battle for them. And the time to take up arms and go to war is apparently here. Leading the charge into war was going to be Saul's duty as their king. And as far as we know, this is his first time doing any of this stuff. But all eyes, you have to imagine, are on him as the news is communicated to him. And maybe the people are weeping in part because they were like the people we read about at the end of chapter 10 who were asking, how can this one deliver us? Maybe they were weeping because they're thinking, oh no, 
Saul has no experience. He, he can't do this. He can't go up against this king. Maybe that's why they're, uh, why they're weeping. Maybe that's what's going on here. But the people who are wondering, how can this one deliver us? Well, they're about to get their answer. If you're wondering if God would help Israel even after Israel turned their back on God, even after they replaced God with a, a king who was just a man, the answer is yes. Yes, God still came to their help. We're told that upon hearing the news of what had happened, the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily, and he became very angry. Notice that those two things run together. Now, this is the second time now that the Spirit of God has come upon Saul. Uh, we saw that he did it one, uh, that it happened once in chapter 10. But we should note that moving forward because when we see that this has happened twice now, that the Spirit of God has come upon Saul twice now, it shows us without any doubt, it, it reveals without any question that God gave Saul Every reason imaginable, every reason he could possibly ask for, every opportunity to serve God's people in God's strength, to see and to learn the importance of serving them in God's strength rather than in his own. That's the lesson that Saul should have learned from these two occasions when the Spirit of God came upon Saul. Several times in the book of Judges, we read about the same thing happening with Judges, right? The Spirit of God descending on one of the Judges, and the Judges would rise up and lead uh, Israel to victory over those who had been oppressing them. Well, here we're seeing the same thing happen. The Spirit of God, just like the Spirit of God came upon the Judges, now the Spirit of God is coming upon their king, King Saul. But let me just quickly note that this is a reminder that it is God's hand that's behind every victory that we as His people experience. Let me say that again. It's a reminder that God's hand is behind every victory that we as His people experience. And that's something that should, that should humble us, just like it's something that should have humbled King Saul. It should lead us to a deeper trust, a deeper dependence on God when we understand that. And to know that He even uses our failures to grow us in Christ-likeness gives us just an extra boost of confidence that God is sovereign and nothing is going to thwart His plans and His promises. One of those promises being He's going to conform us to the image of Christ. He's using all things to conform us to Christ's image. He can make that promise because He can fulfill that promise. But in the end, that's not the effect that it would have on King Saul. For now, however, he would nevertheless serve God's people in God's strength, which is the way that you would want to see a king serving. As the Spirit of God comes upon Saul, comes upon him mightily, we read, we also read that he gets very angry at the same time. Now, some people do have a tough time with that. They have a tough time with Christians uh, or, or God's people being angry people. Uh, but there is such a thing as being Christ-like, as being godly, and being angry. There is such a thing. It is possible for Christians to be angry. We call it righteous anger. Now, we can be certain that anger isn't necessarily itself sinful because sometimes the Scriptures tell us that God 
is angry. And he's perfectly righteous in all of his ways, but yet he's angry toward unrighteousness. So if God can become angry, then anger in and of itself isn't necessarily sinful. Yes, God is love, but God can also be angry. In fact, I would argue that love actually sometimes requires anger because when the object of our love is either defiled or threatened, or slandered, or what have you, that's something that should provoke us to anger. And so with that said, righteous anger is fueled by a concern for the things of God, not with the things of self. Righteous anger deals with God's holiness, preserving the the, the holiness of His name, the holiness of, of His Word, those types of things. Whereas unjust anger is me being offended about something or me not liking something and feeling angry about that just because it offends me personally. But we should also note that righteous anger doesn't sin. Righteous anger doesn't sin. The moment anger crosses that line, the moment anger provokes us to sin, causes us to sin, leads us to sin, that anger is no longer righteous anger. We've crossed the line right? Paul says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. That's from Ephesians 4.26. And so with this in mind, we should be very careful when we are provoked to righteous anger. Uh, Proverbs 29.22 says, an angry man stirs up strife and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. Well, that should never be said of us. Although it should also be said of us that we get angry sometimes when God's name is defiled or slandered. So how do we, how do we find that balance? Well, part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So we make sure that in our anger we do not sin. It should never be said of us that we're that, that kind of people that get angry and sin if we've actually been set free from sin's power over us. And when that can be said of us, we should be quick to repent and to receive God's grace, to be forgiven for it. But that wasn't the case with Saul here. Saul's anger is righteous. Saul's anger is, in fact, I would argue, a reflection of God's anger. It's a reflection of God's anger when God's people are assailed, which is what's happening here. But Saul treads wisely, for once. He doesn't always tread wisely, but he does here. He breaks the oak of of an oxen into pieces, and he sends the pieces throughout all of Israel with with a very simple warning. Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. So this is a call to all of Israel to take up arms and to come out after Saul and Samuel to go to war. But by the way, notice that Saul said, whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, which I think is interesting. So so Saul doesn't want to do this alone. He wants Samuel there with him. Again, that's a good thing. Samuel's the spiritual leader of the country. You want him there. But it's just interesting to me that Saul includes Samuel as those who will be on the front lines of this conflict. But fueled by the anger of the Spirit of God upon him, Saul speaks boldly and decisively and 
but, but we have to understand at the same time, he's also kind of balanced. He's not issuing the craziest threat that he can for anyone who won't take up arms. Uh, he's only threatening the lives of their oxen. He's not saying, if you don't come out, you're going to die. He says, if you don't come out, your oxen are going to be put to death. Uh, that's not a real severe threat. Uh, it's not really a threat that would threaten anyone's livelihood necessarily. It might make their lives more difficult for a while, but it's not going to cost them the ultimate cost, right? Uh, but it was strong enough at the same time to let them know that he does mean business, that this was a serious time when they would need to, uh, to take up arms. But we have to see that he is wonderfully balanced uh, with this summons to war. And it's not Saul's words that actually cause God's people to rise up to action. What causes the people to act? Verse 7 says, Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people. It's because God is the one who prodded them and provoked them that they went into action. God is the one who leads His people to obey. God is the one who grants repentance. But He often uses His, his messengers in such a way that they're a tool in his hand meant to lead his people. But ultimately, it's still God the one, as the one who's leading his people. That's why Peter instructs pastors in 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, he instructs pastors and under-shepherds not to lord their authority over the flock. Why not? Because it's really not necessary. We don't have to be harsh as leaders, as pastors, as elders. We don't have to be too firm, too harsh. We need to to say and and do what needs to be said and done, yes, but then we need to trust the Lord to work with that person. Uh, We don't need to lord our authority over somebody and, and threaten all kinds of this and that. We don't need to do that. Pastors don't need to be heavy handed. And I would actually urge you, if you see a pastor who is heavy-handed, you should probably keep your distance from him because God is the one who leads his people. God is the one who grants them the grace that they need to be strong in their faith. God is the one who grants them the grace to repent and to obey. But we're told that the sons of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. I mean, that's a... That's a pretty sizable army. That's, that's pretty respectable. But God has called and, and prepared all these people for war. All these people show up ready for war. And with such a, such a solid turnout, such a great turnout, the message is, uh, is sent, uh, given, by the, given to the messengers, to take back to Jabesh-Gilead to tell them, tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you will have deliverance. So the men of, of Jabesh-Gilead are clearly relieved to get this message. And so they, they kind of set a trap for their own, uh, of their own for King Nahash here. They say to the, to the armies of King Nahash, the invading Ammonites, tomorrow we will come out to you and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. In other words, make sure you guys all gather right out here tomorrow and, and you can have us for your servants. Uh, so what this does is it, it draws the Ammonite uh, army all together in one place and they will not be prepared for war. They'll be uh, prepared to see a surrender, right? But they won't be prepared for war. And sure enough, Verse 11 tells us that the Israelite army separated into three companies and they came in and they soundly defeated the Ammonites 
and caused them to scatter so that no two Ammonites were found together. They just, everybody went their own way. Self-preservation time, right? But let's be clear about this much before we continue. The victory that we see here, the, the victory that Israel gained in this, uh, in this circumstance uh, was not because of Saul's greatness as a king or as a military leader. That's not why they won. It's not because of how well Saul's army executed this plan. Rather, the victory comes by the power of the Spirit. God is the one who gives the victory. Remember back to Hannah's prayer, back in chapter 2, verse 9. She said this, He keeps the feet of His godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Remember God's word to Zerubbabel in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That reminds us that we must be very careful with Christian leaders who want power. Because that's not the way it works in God's economy. And there are some huge ministries out there run by men who are clearly striving for as much power as they can possibly have. Stay away from those men. They are not trusting the Lord. God's people don't need to rely on worldly strategies. They don't need to rely on marketing. They don't need to rely on pragmatic ideas. When we trust in those types of things, we set ourselves up to fail. And to fail badly. And not only to fail badly, but then to fail before the world as they look on. But when we rely on the power of the Spirit, we prevail insofar as we are strengthened by God's grace and power. We don't need the latest and greatest technique. We don't need the latest and greatest technology. We simply need to trust God. We need to trust that His power is sufficient, that His Word is sufficient, that He strengthens us with sanctifying grace as we yield ourselves in faithful humble obedience to Him and His Word. The way for us to walk in the power of the Spirit. Do you know how to walk in the power of the Spirit? The way to walk in the power of the Spirit is by believing the words that the Spirit has given us in His Word, in the Scriptures. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. This is where the victory is found for the Christian Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Did you catch that? The flesh profits nothing. So anything that we're trying to do that looks exactly like what the world is trying to do is going to profit us nothing. Can we live by those words? That it's the Spirit who gives life and the flesh profits nothing. Can we live by those words? I'll say this, the unregenerate man cannot. Romans chapter 8 makes it clear that he cannot do anything that's pleasing to God. So the question then is, should we live by these words? Should we, as God's people, live by these words? And the answer is yes, we should. And by His grace working within us, we can and we will. The chapter ends with Israel having a unity that they haven't had in a while. They're unified by this victory, wanting to credit King Saul with a war well fought. 
Let's look at verses 12 to 15. It says, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made King Saul before the uh, king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they also offered sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So there's a huge change that takes place between the end of chapter 10 and here the end of chapter 11. The people of Israel knew about those people that we read about at the end of chapter 10 who were unsettled and who were maybe not very happy, discontent with Saul's appointment as king. And that very easily, uh, the, the fact that there, there wasn't a unity, that very easily could have created an absolutely disastrous moment for Israel here. They thought that the solution to this lack of unity was to put the dissenters to death. And, and thus they proposed this solution to, uh, to Saul. Uh, this shows the degree of loyalty that they were feeling toward their king at this point. They, they, they've earned it. He, he's, he's earned it in a sense. Uh, but it also shows you how short-sighted the people were because they failed to realize why the victory had come to them. They're thinking to ourselves, wow, it really was a great idea to go to Samuel and to ask for a king to be set over us like the nations around us. Because look at us now. We're a nation that is victorious over this great and fearful dreaded king. That's what they're thinking rather than thanking God for giving them a king who would be used by God to lead them to victory. Does anyone see the problem with their thinking? Yes. In fact, in Saul's finest moment as Israel's king, we see that he didn't forget. So he responds to this idea of squashing all the dissension by putting these worthless men who didn't, uh, didn't want him as their king to death by saying, not a man shall be put to death this day. For today... The Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. He doesn't take credit at all. He, he doesn't say, yeah, I, I did do pretty well, didn't I? Although later on in his life, you might expect that kind of thing from him. But at this point, no, he recognizes that the victory came by the Lord, not by him. But this is what Saul insisted they be united by ultimately, that they be united by the confession of God's saving grace and power to give them victory. And the church's unity, likewise, is to be built upon God's grace and power, our submission to the authority of His Word alone. But Samuel sees this as a moment to renew Israel's commitment to Yahweh, and so what he does is he takes this opportunity to summon uh, the people to renew the kingdom of Israel at Gilgal. Now remember, that's where Israel had repented once upon a time back in chapter 7. And so the people convened in Gilgal and were told, there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they also offered sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. The victory 
that God's people experienced here was indeed accomplished not by Saul, but by the Lord. That's what leads to this rare, joyous occasion for the people, a moment of celebration. And the same is true for us, friends. Every victory that we experience is ordered, is ordained, is orchestrated by God. But a chapter like this, a chapter like 1 Samuel chapter 11, really should remind us that we face battles too, even today in the 21st century. Now, we might not assemble on a battlefield uh, like the Israelites did, but that's because, as Paul writes in Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The unregenerate people are not our enemies. We're not looking to wage war against them. What are they? They're the mission field, not the enemy. Do not be lulled into believing that the enemies of your soul, the devil, the flesh, the world, wouldn't be just as intent to trample your walk with the Lord, just as hungry to humiliate you, just as eager to enslave you, as Nahash was to do these things to the Israelites in King Saul's time. William Blakey notes this in his commentary. He says, quote, If we regard Nahash as representing the tyranny of sin, we may derive from his conditions an illustration of the hard terms which sin usually imposes, end quote. So consider how Nahash wanted to pluck out the right eye of the Israelites and how Jesus said if your right eye causes you or if your eye causes you to stumble pluck it out and throw it from you it's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell that's what he taught in Matthew 18 verse 9 so sin would still have you lose an eye if it could it's a reminder friends this chapter is a reminder that we must not just surrender to sin. When temptation comes, we need to see our need for salvation, our need for deliverance. But you must wage war against your sin. You don't just fold like a wet towel against it. And and remember that even having the desire to sin is itself sin. Fight even the root desire to sin. So what are we to do? Well, first of all, you must know, like Israel did, you must know that you need to be saved. You must know that you need to be delivered, just like the Israelites sent messengers out asking to be saved from certain defeat. You need, and you need to understand and recognize the fact that you need salvation. You need to be forgiven, because that's where the real battle begins. Salvation, forgiveness, from the penalty of sin is found by believing in the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. You must know that He alone can save us. He alone is Savior. He alone is Lord. You must know it intellectually, but it cannot just be something that is head knowledge for you. It can't just be intellectual knowledge. You also have to actually be willing to trust in Him to stand on His promise that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that without Him, you will just be in bondage to sin as a slave to sin. Friends, Christ is King. Christ is the King of kings and He will save all who believe on Him. 
And then what? Well, once you become a Christian, the battle only increases from there. If you're a Christian with some years of experience as a Christian, you know this. You know that Christianity isn't something that you, that you receive in order to have an easier life. No, your life actually becomes more difficult because that's when the real battle begins. From there, we have a spiritual battle that we're to face and to fight. So we pray. We pray for God's help. We pray for God's grace. Jesus said in Luke eleven thirteen, How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So pray for the Lord to deliver you. Pray for, for salvation. Pray that the Spirit would not only wean you from your sin. I actually don't like that word wean. It's too kind. It's too gradual. No, pray that He would break you from your sin. Pray that He would cause you to hate the things that wage war against your soul. You must see sin as your mortal enemy. If you don't see sin as your mortal enemy, you will, the only alternative, be at peace with your sin. If you don't see it as your mortal enemy, you won't go to war with it. Friends, the church in our day and age, by and large, fails to understand that we are in this spiritual battle. And the reason that so many Christians are so worldly is because they don't hate sin. And because they don't hate sin, they don't see the danger that sin actually poses directly to them. And yet Peter warns us with very clear language that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's talking about you. That's what your, that's what your sin is going to do to you. That's what the devil wants to do to you. So the question is, how do we guard ourselves? How do we protect ourselves against this? Peter says, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Resist him. Verse 9, firm in your faith. Let me just leave you with this. When a nation rejects God, you know there are going to be consequences. And we should expect that God's people who remain faithful in those times are going to be hated by those around them And when we are, Christ is the King who will save us, who will vindicate us. That doesn't mean you won't have hard times. What it it means is in the end, you'll be vindicated. And until then, God's causing all things to conform you to the image of Christ, including times of persecution and tribulation and affliction. But Jesus told us, He promised us, That when he died, he would go to the Father and ask the Father to send the Spirit, and that God the Son and God the the Father would send the Holy Spirit. And we should remember that the same Spirit that rushed upon Saul, who rushed upon Saul, will also fill you and teach you to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. And he will enable you and empower you by his grace to stand strong and to persevere even while the culture around us becomes increasingly foolish, increasingly sinful, increasingly godless. But in the end, be confident in this, that in the end, God will ultimately, once and for all, vindicate us. He saved us from the penalty of sin, He's saving us from the power of sin, and He's going to save us from the presence of sin. The day will come when you're not even in its presence ever again. 
But until then, until then, may God strengthen our faith in order that He may use us for His glory and for His purposes among those being to warn the world around us of their need for salvation, for a King who is also their Savior, and to proclaim the power of God unto salvation, the gospel, to those whose lives are besieged by sin and faithlessness. Jesus is the King who will go to battle for us. He's the only one who can free us. He's the only one who can deliver us from the tyranny of sin. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is sufficient, that it is inerrant, inspired, infallible, unassailable, We thank You for the way that it instructs us even thousands of years later in Your ways. And so we pray that as You granted Israel victory in this chapter, we pray that You would grant us victories in the battles we face. We pray, Lord, that You would sustain us with Your grace so that even if the battle doesn't end on this side of glory, your grace will always be greater than the battle we face. And we pray for this, Lord, so that we may persevere, so that we may press on, so that we may be found faithful to our final breath, because we know that you alone are worthy of every ounce of devotion and faith and worship and love and loyalty that we have for all of our lives. And we know that it's sustained by your grace. So strengthen us to stand firm even as the world around us crumbles apart for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.